certainty of the resurrection. The certainty of the resurrection. If I had to give a title, which I don't often do, um, to this sermon, I would say, As sure as noon follows morning. History is flowing in one particular direction. And it is flowing in the direction in which we would expect it. Some people say that if you think of history, you think of it bending towards justice. And I guess what we're dealing with today is history bending towards justice. Before I get into the meat of the matter, I want to read from you um, in 1 Corinthians 15. I'll be reading from verses 20 to 28. So again, um, our brother um, Paul last week faithfully broke down um, the, 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 the... Paul runs with the argument of all right, let's say there is no resurrection. And he plays and he, and, he, and he draws out the conclusions of that. And then what we have in verse 20 is, is the end of that argument coming and then he, he proclaims what he actually believes and what is actually true. So if you follow me, I'll be reading from the ESV, but please do follow in whatever translation you have available. And it says this, But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as a man came, for as by man came death, by a man has has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom of God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is expected who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him. That God may be all in all. Let me take the time to pray um, before I jump in and, and, and make any statements I believe will be helpful on this text. Father, we are so thankful this morning that we have, um, even though we do not live in the time of Easter, as it were, we're not, April is long gone, Lord, yet, Father, it doesn't stop us from celebrating the resurrection of your Son. That, Father, we can live in the glory of that, though, God, because it's a reality that spreads, not just from that first Easter, it has spread into all the reality in which we live now. From the history, Father, from that day onwards, and even backwards from that day, dear Lord, Father, the effects of Christ's resurrection was redeeming a world to himself. And for this, dear Lord God, we have much reasons to rejoice, much reason, dear Lord God, to be con- to. to, to to be rejoicing and to be content. So, Father, as we unpack this, dear Lord God, wherever we may be in our lives, whatever we may be doubting, dear Lord God, I pray we will not doubt your word and the certainty of it. That, Lord, that we will wake up in our stupor if we are somehow, dear Lord God, living below the expectation that Paul is placing into us right now, Father, through these texts, through these words. Help us, dear Lord Father, to grasp this because it can truly transform us if we do. So, Lord, we are thankful for the good work you have begun in us, because, Lord, we know you are also faithful to complete it. In Jesus' name, amen. The first thing I want to speak to you about 
is expectation. If there's one thing I want to kind of maybe, the one takeaway from this is how to train our expectations. <clears throat> how to make our expectations something that really leads our life, that helps our lives. To some extent, expectation is connected to hope. Are we hopeful people? I, don't, I believe that if we're without hope, you can't really be Christian. It's not to say that we don't have moments of doubt. I'm just saying that hope ultimately fuels the whole Christian message. The gospel itself, the good news, that God will be able to fulfill that which he has started, that he won't renege. We live in a world where people change their minds. We live in times where people are, as it were, changing the rules, day by day, moment by moment. Maybe you've been in a relationship where someone has sworn their commitment to you and then changed their mind. Maybe you've been that person. Maybe you have every reason to not be expectant and not to be hopeful because not only do you live in a world where people break their word to you, you also live in a world in which you break your world to others. But Christ is not like this. Christ is not a man, neither is God, that he should lie. Let me start by kind of teasing out how we can maybe help, allow this text to help us in life. And if I was to ask you, what sense, that is the senses in which we experience the world with, our touch, our, our eye, our sight, our ears, our taste, our smell, which sense would you be prepared to live without? I mean, when we really think about it, it, and this is me thinking as a man here, and I think I'm pretty much stand with where everyone else is, is that probably taste and smell would be the ones that we're pretty much going to eject quickly. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to live in a world where I can't see things. I don't really want to live in a world where I can't hear music, um, you know. I wouldn't like to feel like I couldn't, you know, if I was touching something, you know, and I couldn't feel anything. You know, then taste and smell, but then again, you know, if I can't taste anything, how would I know I've got COVID? When you really come down to it, you kind of think that, well, actually, smell. Because you start to think about all the things that you could actually benefit from not smelling. You know, you wouldn't be able to smell your, your favorite perfume. But again, there's loads of stuff that you wouldn't be able to smell that you'd probably go, oh, actually, that will make my commute a whole lot better. That, me, that may, will make me walking down certain streets be a whole lot more pleasant. We could probably say it's the most expendable. But I want us to think again. When we think about this area of expectation, there is no sense like the sense of smell that can con connect us to the intangible realities that lay beyond us. There's nothing like the sense of smell. The sense of smell is so powerful that when we smell something, not only can, it, can we anticipate what lies ahead of us, whether good or bad, we can also anticipate things that have actually already happened. It takes us back into the past. We smell a smell and it's like, that takes me back. Our sense of spell connects us to worlds beyond our reach. There's nothing like that sense of smell when you walk in home and you can smell a good meal cooking. When that good meal is cooking, you, when you smell it, you know because all your other senses start to get excited. 
You can start to taste it. You can start to visualize it. You can even hear it sizzling in the pan. <laughs> One thing about the sense of smell, though, is that when you smell it, you know it exists. Because there is, so, so they say there's no smoke without fire. There's no aroma without that aroma being connected to some tangible reality. When we smell it, you know it exists. That's expectation. And before we think about cutting off the one thing that can connect us to the world beyond, to, the, to that which we cannot lay, how, lay, lay our hands on, put and touch, I would like to remind you that your sense of smell is important. And so is your sense of expectation. I feel that this illustration helps connect us to what Paul is trying to convey to the Corinthians and to all believers as well. That if we lose the expectation, if we lose that connection to the world beyond, then we will lose something really, really rewarding. The text itself, I think, by my estimation, breaks itself down into three sections that I want to kind of go through with you. The first section, I believe, is what I would call the theological reasons. The theological groundwork. Paul works this way because obviously he's a teacher, he's a lawyer. He knows how to make an argument work. And so he lays down the principle. He gives us the working out and then he shows us what that looks like. But we'll get to that soon. So we start off in verse 20 with verse 20 with the hard adversative. As I said to you, our brother Paul broke down the reality of living in a world in which the resurrection is not real. But obviously, Paul is just playing the role of the Corinthians who don't believe such things. And, and he wants to show them the fallacy of their position. The but there, as we all know in life, means that right now I'm going to negate everything that I've previously said and actually restate to you the truth. He makes a 180-degree turn and now heads in the direction in which they ought to be going. Given the jeopardy that the unrisen Christ brings to the Christian faith, he now makes the point that Christ has a detrimental effect on believers. Whether they, whether they know it or not, he has a detrimental effect. He has changed and altered the way in which we live. For Paul... The resurrection of Christ is not an isolated event in history. In other words, there's many things that happen that have no bearing on the world, so to speak. Maybe you feel like now that your life has no bearing. But Christ's life, and in particular his death and resurrection, has altered every human being, whether for good or for bad. Because he has started, as it were, the end times. <clears throat> if you understand da Daniel, the revelation of the Son of Man is the beginning of the end times. We have been living in the end times for 2,000 years. And as Peter warns us, don't think because it tarries that it isn't happening. There are many people that obviously have changed the course of people's lives. You know, the Martin Luthers of the world, whether junior or the monk. But no one can really claim that they have changed everybody's life, even the ones that existed before they lived. This is Jesus Christ. He has altered everything. So this is when I say when he is not isolated in history, 
he has had a detrimental effect to how we all live and how we are going to live. So Jesus is, as, as a resurrected person, is the first of many. And this is the first statement, theological reason, that, he, that Paul lays down. In fact, he says, more precisely, he is the first fruits. Again, we don't live in an agrarian culture where we appreciate what first fruits mean. But something maybe we can appreciate is that I'm, I'm a man who, who likes to buy fruits in season. And I tend not to buy certain fruits that are not in season. Again, we live in a world where people can pretty much provide us with peaches any time of the year. But when you really look at it, peaches only grow certain times. Apples, have a, have a, a, likewise, have a certain time in which they are best eaten. And what, you've, what I have found over the years is that when you eat a fruit out of season, even though they've, got, they've managed to grow it somewhere else, it doesn't taste nice. Flavors are flat. But when you buy a fruit just at the beginning of the season, as it were, the first fruits, that peach t- tastes sweet. You know, when you start to, when you start to buy English strawberries, June, July, fresh from the Kent farms, and that comes packaged there. And, and when you start to see all of a sudden the displays in the supermarket are now packing out the strawberries, and you taste those strawberries, freshly picked, the first fruits, they taste sweet. I'm telling you. But when you start coming to like the end of August and September, you start to realize the taste is a little bit flat. But the first fruit is what is presented to the buyer, to, to the person who's going to reap the benefit of the crop. And it's here and it's presented to them and says, here is the first of the crop. Here is the beginning. Here is what you can expect from the best of the crop. Now, obviously, I don't want us to trail off in that illustration and start to think that some of us will become like sour fruits in the resurrection. Because what we're talking about, we, 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 we're in that point where we over-farm. We're so desirous of getting things all year round that we end up with issues like fruit that don't taste right. But I'm talking about the, the perfection of eating a fruit in its season. When it's at its peak. And Jesus is not presenting any of us outside of his peak. He is the standard. He is what all the rest are like. You know, it's not like um, sh- a shady deal. You know, like when you see in those movies where they, they put all the real money on the top but then it's all paper money <laughs> at the bottom. This is what, so it looks like I'm getting a million in the case, but ultimately all I'm getting is, you know, basically a thousand on the top and then paper below. That's not what we're talking about here. We're talking about he is the standard in which all of us will be resurrected in. For those of you who've lived a little, you might remember the Del Monte ads. And it gives us a perfect illustration of that when, when the man from Del Monte comes in his white suit and he hobbles and he sits on that chair just outside the fields and the farmers run to go and get that fruit. Now you have to picture the man from Del Monte being God, the father. And it's like the angels have gone in and they've, they've brought Christ resurrected before him. Here is the new creation. Here is the prototype for the new, what is to come. God, like the man from Del Monte, he says, yes. I'll buy it. 
I'll have the whole crop. If you can make, if, you, if this is it, if, this is, if you can keep the standard, I will have them. And Jesus says, I can, I can keep them because those you have given to me will be no means taken from his hand. God has said yes. We are going to be the cream of the crop with Christ. And it's God's approval of Jesus is what resurrects him from the dead. A righteous man cannot die. A righteous man should not die. And this is what God is bringing back. A world as it ought to have been. And the whole crop of of believers who will likewise live the redeemed life. A righteous life with Christ. In verse 21 now, we start to see the argument build as he now makes, again, more foundations for that theological reason. And he now lays down the four in that first verse. In, for as man came, for as by man came death. So the four there is what we call an explanative four. So this is where, the, where, where he now unpacks and he says, well, this is how it now, the theological reasoning now works. And he's unpacking it more, the groundwork. If you want to see the details, more of the details of Paul's argument here, you can see it in an expanded form in Romans 5, 12 to 21. Please note that verse. Go back and read it because, again, it will unpack this and help us to understand what does he mean. For as by one man came death, so also by another man came the resurrection from the dead. What does that mean? Well, this is known as, in, in doctrinal terms, as the federal heads. Principle, there are two, there are two people in whom this creation lives under. A better way to probably unpack this is that, say, you know, we always hear those terms, you know, you know, ultimately there's only two types of people. Well, this is the ultimate, there are only two types of people in this world. And when you think about the fact that when eternity is in scope, eternity is actually at play, then you start to begin to understand that this is the ultimate, there are only two types of people. Those under the old Adam and those under the new Adam. Those who are destined for a life of death under the old Adam and those who are destined for a life unto life in the new Adam. Now, a little segue here about the issue of universalism. When people try to read the text in such a way to say that, well, really, ultimately, God is going to save everybody. This, is, this doctrine negates that. Because when you look at the word of God, right from the very beginning, there was an, as, as, as well as there was an Abel, there was a Cain. There are two cities. You know, one of, the, one of the great books of Augustine, uh, The City of God, talks about, right from the very beginning, this whole idea of two cities being built. The city of man, built in the image of Cain, and then the city of God, that continues from Abel into Seth. And people then called upon the name of the Lord again. So there is a, there is a city in which God is not proclaimed. That's what that means. And then there is another city, a temple of God, in which his name is proclaimed. How can the people who do not proclaim the name of God be ultimately saved? Well, 
putting that aside and moving on. In verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You know, when common grace is actually taken away from the old creation, when that's taken away, all the similarities between the two kingdoms will disappear. The common grace that upholds the unrighteous, when that no longer exists, their wickedness will come to the top. The wickedness that that common grace was suppressing will now reveal itself. But they are unaware of this. There's a book I, I, I read a number of years ago which really helped me understand this principle very well. And it's the portrait of Dor the picture of Dorian Gray, the portrait in French, but in the English it's the picture of Dorian Gray. If you're familiar with the story, here's a, it's, it talks, tells a story about a man who has a portrait at the very beginning of the book painted of him. And statements are made about the picture which say, you know, hasn't this captured the beauty of this man? And wouldn't it be great if this person could keep this beauty? Wouldn't it be great if Dorian could stay like this? And it's almost like the very comments from that from, from people looking at that portrait being done of Dorian, start to believe and put, make that image into something supernatural. And the picture then begins to soak up all of the evil that Dorian does. As he gets Older, he doesn't actually age. And as you see through the book, he, does, he gets into deeper and deeper debauchery to the point where his name is spread around London. And everybody knows this guy. And all of a sudden, to the end, you know, as, as people get older and they've noticed that he doesn't get older, they avoid him. But they can't understand why he still looks beautiful. Why does he still look handsome? And then one day, people, uh, certain people break into the, into the attic room and they see the picture and they see the ugliness of Dorian Gray captured in the picture. So all the ugliness that he does, all the sin he commits, goes into that picture. And that portrays the reality of who he is. Even though he looks fine on the outside. The picture has captured the ugliness of his life. Our lives will diverge from that of the common unbeliever. And they will be revealed for what they are. Because, again, many like Dorian are going around and thinking that I look great, so therefore I must be great on the inside. I've got nice skin. I've got nice features. So therefore I must be okay. The world adores me. But they don't understand that those under Adam actually live a subhuman existence. A subhuman existence. Moving on to the second section, where I call, I've, I've, I've entitled from verse 23. On to 26, the eschatological destinies of both the old and the new humanity. So now it moves on. And this is where, as I've showed you from verse 22, again we have a but there. 
So Paul is now unpacking that which I've just kind of laid down, but each in his own order. So the two humanities are, gonna, are going to different destinies. They're in two different orders. Those moving on to death and those moving on to life. Those moving on to the ugliness of their sin and those moving on to the beauty of the Lord. Christ the first fruits then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so the, those who are under Christ are now being gathered to represent his beauty. So part of that is what we call sanctification. We have been sanctified under the Lord. We have been sanctified in order to, to kind of meet that, but sanctification will always fall short. We will never be what we ought to be, and we will know it. And those of you, as you get wiser, you realize, I shouldn't beat myself up because glorification is promised. There will become a moment when all of that will be transformed. And the work will be finished. But right now we find that what we do through sanctification is draw out the distinctions between us and the world. They will do good things, but they won't do it for the right reasons. We will do the right things for the reasons because of the beauty of God, because of the grace of God. I extend the grace to you, not because I'm looking for something from you, but because I realize I'm saved. Like the, like the servant in Matthew 18 should have realized. I go and I forgive others and I do things, not because I want to get something out of them or I want to kind of have the praise of men, because I understand that I'm a man saved by grace. How can I condemn you when I am being redeemed? A redemption of infinite value. So, our destinies have been set in motion by the resurrection because now the end is really outworking itself and we're on a countdown. So we are destined to be, off, to be an offering for God with Christ as a new creation. And there's that, there's that distinction. The new creation versus the old creation. And verse 24. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God after destroying every rule and every authority and power. So here we have, there will be, you know, in the rock and roll crowd, there's that sentiment, isn't it? Better to rule in hell than to serve in heaven. The problem is, is that there is going to be no ruling except for Christ's rule. That's the reality that is dawning upon those who refuse to proclaim the name of God, is that there will be no ruling. Because as this will end, the all in all that God will become is that there will be no authority, no place, no Satan. There will only be God. The rule of heaven is all that there will be. So to the contrary, there's no rule other than God's rule. And that's the consummation we're working towards. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. Again, Paul emphasizes here the inevitability that Christ set in motion through the resurrection because Christ has set himself as the kingsman redeemer. And that's an important term that we have to understand. And, you know, we, you know that what you see in process here. Is, being, is, 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 is what we see in Hebrew culture known as the Kingsman Redeemer. If you want to see a great picture of this, I would, I would say look at Ruth and look at the picture of Boaz. You know, the Kingsman Redeemer was, was normally the senior member of a family who existed. So the, the senior patriarch. 
And again, his role would not just extend to his own family, but to the extended family, to aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and so on. And he would look after them. And normally, they retained the wealth because obviously they would hopefully be the oldest son and they've, all the, the wealth has been passed down to them. And that if anybody in the family was in trouble, the kingsman redeemer will go out and help them out. And that's what we see in the book of Ruth is Boaz <coughs> helps Naomi and Ruth out because they are his responsibility. He pays their debts. He takes care of them. He makes sure that they're fed because they fell on hard times. And so the Kingsman Redeemer is the person who stands in the place to help the rest of the family. But what we see here is is Christ playing the bigger role of the Kingsman Redeemer. And if you want to see a better picture of this, look at Revelation 5. Because everything you see depicted here is being played out in that scene in heaven where the scroll, the title deeds for the new creation, for creation itself, is sitting before the throne. And people are wondering, who will be able to redeem the world? Who will be able to take up? Who will be able to redeem? Which person on earth stands in a position and has the wealth in order to pick up that scroll and redeem humanity back? And people were, and, and, and John starts to cry because he sees what's at stake. He sees his own life at stake. And then a lamb that was slain, comes and picks up the scroll and and unrolls the soul and, and, and the angels start to sing because he is worthy and he has picked up the scroll. And this is the significance, the greatest significance. I'll encourage you to read Revelation 5 because this is the picture of of this event being seen in heaven by John. Again, the inevitability of the resurrection and the consequences of that resurrection. The title deeds of creation have been redeemed. The kingsman redeemer came, which Adam failed to do. A new Adam comes and he says, I will become the new Adam. I will take responsibility. Adam was the original federal head. He was the one who should have been able to help out his family. But he was powerless. He was in the same position as them. He was broke, spiritually speaking. And so came a new Adam who was not spiritually broke. Verse 26. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And, you know, one of the questions that came to my mind, does the destruction of death mean that there is an eternal hell? And I, I, I believe there probably is. There is no death in the final eschatological realization, then we have to live with the fact that there is an eternal hell that exists alongside an eternal heaven. But moving on, why is this important? Because there's whatever this may mean for the unrighteous, it's not it's not clear. But I believe that there is there's sufficient enough evidence to say that. to be unredeemed will not necessarily <laughs> will not necessarily suffer the dignity of, as it were, of just being evaporated. But what it means to us is that the new creation cannot exist with death still being on the table. Death has to be taken off the table so that that new creation can live to the standard in which God had determined for it. There must be an eternal life. Because in order for something to be good, it must be eternally good. And we all experience that in our own lives. When we have a great moment, maybe again, a great moment with friends, a great night that you don't want to end. And it comes to an end and, and, and we feel that, we almost feel that sigh. Not quite the same when, we, when somebody dies, but we get that 
that deep longing that this ought not to end. This moment ought to, to go on. And, and there's that sense of disappointment as we go to sleep. And then we wake up into a new reality. And that moment is gone. I believe that we experience that. And we suddenly realize, I, you know, and we say it often, isn't it? I wish this night wouldn't end. I wish this season go on. And I think that that's the longing that we see in Ecclesiastes 3, that God has put eternity in our hearts. That he realizes that because of death in that cycle, you know, that Ecclesiastes 3, there's a time, of, time for peace, a time for war, a time for gathering sticks. That whole idea that all those negative aspects of life that we have to endure all of a sudden cut across those good times. And death, ultimately, is the cycle that basically makes all those things necessary. But once death is off the table, we get joy inexhaustible. Joy continuously. So that's the reason why death must, must, must come to an end. The final section, section 3, in verses 27 to 28 is the final eschatological reality. Eschatological means the end times, the end, the end condition of, of the world or anything. So at verse 27, at the appointed um, end, God himself will complete the transaction. And that's what we see again in Revelation 5. But here Paul Psalms, um, cites Psalms 8, verse 6. But again, it alludes to this whole idea of of the consummation of God now finally um, giving victory to Christ and giving him the title deeds, that which we see obviously in Revelation 5. And then 28, when all things are subject to him, the Son himself will also be subjected to him and he will put all things in subjection unto him so that, may, that, so that God may be all in all. We need to avoid uh, um, an Arian um, heresy here. This nature of uh, the Son being uh, in subjection, subjection to God or the Father is sometimes used as, the whole, as a proof text to the fact that, well, see, he's, a, he's referred to as being subject to God. And if he's subject to God, then he must be creaturely. He cannot be equal to God because he says subject. But again, we've got to remember that Christ is equally man as well as he's equally God. And, and in his humanity, as, as the new Adam, as the son of man, he is in subjection to God like Adam ought to have been. But in his divine nature, he is also equal to God. So to that, to, to that extent, he is given the kingdom to himself as the son eternal. So if people try to confuse you with that, then suddenly just remind them that we are aware that Christ also has a divine nature. You only have to read the Gospel of John, chapter 1, and understand that, that he was not a God, he was the God. There is no, there is a submission within the Godhead, but an equality that ultimately means that God can only be God. There is not some in the Godhead who are more God than the others. Both Father, Son, and Spirit are equally God in their divinity. In the final statement that God will be all in all, is the full circle and the complete dominion. This is a, now talking about a creation in which there is no other influence other than God. There's no Satan. There's no voice in your ear saying, you know, did God really say? This is the end of temptation. That he is now the prevailing influence over the whole creation. And this is the reason why the old creation cannot exist in the same space as the new creation, because there will be no influence other than God. So what does this mean to us? How do we apply this? 
I want us to go back to the illustration I opened with the, the sense of smell, being engaged by a delicious meal. You know, Paul is endeavoring to engage the Corinthians in understanding that Christ's resurrection has initiated our own resurrection. This is guaranteed because the reality of Christ's historical resurrection has guaranteed our own. It's a process that has started. It can't be stopped or halted. There's not a special machine in the conveyor belt. When you look in Revelation 5, there's no you know, red button in the background where God could go, no, no, let's stop this process and go right back to the beginning and maybe rethink this because maybe they're not worthy. That red button does not exist. It's heading towards the inevitability. As again, as I said, as sure as noon follows, morning. We are heading towards this reality. Here Paul is writing in such a way that our senses are set ablaze with expectation. We should feel the inevitability of what will come after death. And that's why I say that that sense of smell is so important. That sense of expectation, that sense of hope, because it can carry us beyond when doubts come. Like he said, all the other senses need to be in contact with that thing in which it needs to engage with. But our sense of smell, our expectation carries us into that other world, carries us beyond now. And, and, and when we smell the aroma of Christ was resurrected as the first fruit, we smell those fruits growing in that field. We start to get that picture That something good is really coming. Our expectation is sure. Death was, is, and will always be a thorny subject, especially to the world. And even for us as believers. So much so that we can't even avoid it. And when we do try to avoid it, we, we bring a bravado like we can somehow put it off. If only we drink the right drink, get enough exercise, or avoid anybody that can make me sick. Don't walk down the road where some leaders will tell you that they can dance between the raindrops. I think we're living in such times where people are trying to tell you that you can dance between the raindrops and avoid it. That time has not yet come. Finally, I just want to take you to Luke 10, 17 to 20. I just want to read this here because I think it's, it's a great way to end. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. <clears throat> At the time Jesus said this to his disciples, they had no idea what he was talking about. At that time, they were just looking for a free ethnic Israel, a better life for their nation, a nation out of bondage, a nation that was living free and could have a place of respect in the world. A nation like under David, the golden age of Israel. But what Jesus was offering them was more than what they could have expected. A world filled with people born from him. Maybe you have not grasped the big vision of what Christ is offering. 
And like the unenlightened disciples, you're just looking for a better place for you and your people. A better place in the world. A world in which I am respected. A world in which ethnically I can be appreciated and stand on my own two feet. I hope today you will see a world that is bigger than what you're expecting. Bigger than a safe place in which you can be recognized, but a place in which you are called to be a whole new creation. And not just having a small space in this big world. Like the disciples, they lived to see and appreciate a world that was bigger than Judaism. And I hope today you will be able to appreciate a world that is bigger than the world you're currently in. No matter how big you think it is. The new creation is coming. Your resurrection is assured if you're in Christ, the new Adam. The revelation of your wickedness is assured for those who are in the old Adam. Choose you this day who you will serve. If it be God, let it be God. If it be Baal, let it be Baal. But I pray that you will choose God. Join us next time for more of God's truth to transform your reality.